Los Angeles is a mega city in a state of perpetual change, where long-standing neighborhoods are rebranded with new names and history can be obscured with a new building or freeway. Hello, I'm radio producer Ruxandra Guidi. And I'm Bear Guerra, a photographer. And this is South of Fletcher, stories from the bowtie. We live here in L.A. We're married, and we've been creating audio and photo documentaries together for 13 years. We've partnered with the arts organization Clock Shop to tell a story of urban development, to try to make sense of life in this fast-paced and forever-changing city. This is a story about a quiet sliver of L.A. not many people know about, the Bowtie Parcel, a narrow, 18-acre plot of land next to the Los Angeles River, an empty lot that's full of history and possibility. And now, here's Chapter 2, Disturbance. The bowtie looks abandoned. On most days, you're unlikely to cross paths with anybody out here, though clearly people are passing through. That tent over there, he's not over here. That's his tent. It's a wide open space that used to be a rail yard, though there's very little evidence of that history. We're at the southern edge of the track's 18-acre stretch. From the air, it looks like a bow tie, hence the name. Also, look at that. See who's partying out here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and with us is Luis Rincón. He's a community engagement coordinator with California State Parks. In 2003, State Parks bought the bow tie parcel from Union Pacific Railroad for $10.7 million. Their plan is to eventually turn this into a state park, part of a greenway that would border the river for up to 11 miles. People uh, crave these kind of spaces in the city like this, you know? They have everything concrete and traffic, like, here's right. this. It's the overcrowdedness, too. <clears throat> it speaks to the, that we are part poor yeah. in LA. We do need more open space, more green space. In LA, of course, we don't have enough real space to go around. More than half of L.A. residents don't live within walking distance of a park. My long-term vision is that this would be this would be like a, a park-like open space, like any like like any other, with with native plants and with with wild trees, with with gardens and with with um, also facilities and you know education centers and, and all that comes from when we engage the community, as they can see what 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 is the value that they that they see in this resource. That's a good question to ask and there's plenty of time to answer it. Within the next decade, this vacant parcel will be transformed. First, California State Parks will need to clean up decades and layers of contamination at portions of the site from its previous life as one of the busiest railroad repair yards in the region. And once that's done, Luis's mission will be to talk to locals and get them to come out here. Federal mandate is like, you know, for vital urban community, you need, you know, four acres per per thousand people and it's we have like one point something 1.8 in LA and yet LA County encompasses a sprawling 5,000 square miles about twice the size of Delaware with more than 10 million people crammed into it you can imagine we badly need green spaces or at the very least just places where we can be alone with our thoughts or for some alone with a can of beer sometimes Luis grew up in El Sereno, a 
working-class neighborhood not too far from the L.A. River and the Bowtie, back when the Bowtie was still a rail yard. He ended up going to college in Northern California, near the border with Oregon, closer to nature. He discovered his love for hikes and fishing there, but he wanted to be close again to his family. After college, I returned to, to L.A., and then what, what brought me to the L.A. River is a friend from college who worked in uh, at the National Forest. He invited me, he's like, hey, I'm a ranger at the National Forest. I'm in L.A., let's go fishing. I'm like, where? He's like, oh, man, the L.A. River. And I'm like, he's already been there? I'm like, not really. He's like, well... It was just it was just fishing and recreation, just to kind of spend some time, some time here. Today, most of the LA River's 51 miles flows through a giant concrete flood control channel that was built in the 1940s and 50s. But here, next to the Bowtie, the stretch of the river is very much alive, where the natural bottom is still more or less intact and not covered in concrete. There are even trees and tall reeds growing in the riverbed. It's not a very wide river, and if you sit on the concrete bank, you could dip your feet in it, though that's probably not the best idea because the water often has a lot of bacteria in it. Still, it's very pretty in places, with a more or less constant, gentle current. By the way, the fish weren't safe to eat when Louise started fishing here, and they're still not safe to eat now. But steelhead trout used to pass by here on their way to spawn. Those haven't been seen in decades, not since the channel was built. But you can still find common carp and largemouth bass. And lanky great blue herons and snowy egrets are a constant presence in the shallow waters, searching for their next meal. Look at the birds, they're... they're... Having a party? Yeah, they're having a party. What do we see down there? That's a black-necked stilt, and I think that's a, that's a heron. Yeah. So this is, so people, like, we forget to look at birds, but this is also the Western Pacific Flyway. That means this is a stoppage point. That's the north-south route for migratory birds along the Pacific coast, which means that many different bird species pass through here. And a lot of them are fishing. There's, like, little mosquito fish. Every major city of the world has a river. And so that's, I mean, people don't know that that's what gave Los Angeles its name. The city's full actual name is a Spanish-language mouthful. It's Nuestra Reina... Uh, de Los Angeles sobre el Rio de Porcincula, which is the Los Angeles River. De, de Porcincula. I don't know what Porcincula means, but Porcincula, they say it means the river, the river. So along the LA River, the city of our of our, our Queen of the Angels. <laughs> That's yeah. So this is this is what gave it gave it its name. And people, when they come down here, some people, some kids live a half a mile from the river in the projects and they've never been to the LA River and never seen that, that it had. There is fish, there is birds, there is butterfly, there is all this nature, this interconnectivity. A lot of people may not even know that LA has a river. It's easy to miss. It is barely visible from the freeways, not to mention that it looks more like a giant ditch. There aren't too many obvious places to access it around the city and most people don't know about the ones that do exist, like the Bowtie. But this not-so-clean river and the bowtie parcel next to it represent nature in Los Angeles. Luis, Bear, and I are standing at the edge of the bowtie, looking down past the concrete channel at the river and its vegetation below. It's as if the two landscapes don't belong in the same picture. In the foreground, there is gravel and asphalt and trash strewn about. And down in the water, willow trees that are 30 feet tall 
with a couple of white egrets resting on the branches. Earlier this spring, we invited Travis Longcore to visit the bowtie with us and help us see it through his eyes. He's a historical ecologist who teaches at the University of Southern California and has done research on species that do well in spite of, or perhaps because of, disturbance. That's the official term for less than ideal living conditions like the ones we find here. Deerweed, right? Deerweed is, is a great butterfly food plant. And so you come to a place like this and you're just reminded that this, which in another, there's, and there's a, a spring butterfly that's associated with this plant here. This is a disturbance-loving plant. It's a disturbance-following plant. It's short-lived. It's a native plant of the, of the, the chaparral and coastal sage scrub. And it thrives here because it's a disturbed site. And there's a couple other things. You look around, there's coyote brush and there's, you know, mule fat and whatnot, which are kind of these bulletproof, um, you know, uh, plants of the, of the, the, um, the river terraces. Or the top of the old river banks, which are, of course, covered in concrete, and yet still, through the cracks, these plants grow. Mule fat scrub, for example, is native to this area. It has these clusters of tiny white fuzzy flowers that bloom around July, attracting lots of bees, the kind of shrub that's easy to ignore. But it's fair to assume they've been around this area for centuries, and will be in the future too. So what would this side have looked Take us back through history on this side, like pre-rail pre yard, you know? Yeah, um, well, here's the thing is, I do, what I don't know is how much of this was filled out into the river um, and how much they just took advantage of this terrace and the river was down over there. And it, it varies in different places along. Um, and, that, and sometimes these were just lower terraces and they got raised up. Um, but you can see evidence uh, in the soils of, over the long term of, you know, sort of the whole thing flooding, you know, even up, up into these areas now that we think are out of the floodplain, we're, we're, we're in it at, at, at a certain point. Um, as far as I understand, much of what we're standing on is... is, is Landfill? After, oh, yeah. Here, yeah. 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 That so it's surprise higher me. than it was. Yeah. We may be standing on a layer of dirt that has moved from the riverbed to where we stand now. Travis can still imagine what this place might have looked like 100 or 200 or even 500 years ago. Before the railroad came, there was agriculture and dairy farms. And before then, brambles and prickly shrubs, dense willows and oaks. Reaching back even farther, before the Spanish arrived in the late 1700s, the native Tongva people lived off this river's waters and the animals and plants it supported. If you look at what people did around the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the things they did before you could go around and collect Pokemon is you could actually connect eggs and birds' nests. Uh, and so this was a bit of a Victorian kind of thing to do, but there were a lot of hobbyists who did this. Um, and those ended up in collections. One of the biggest collections of these birds' nests and eggs is in the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology in Camarillo, about an hour and a half from here. 
Travis and his team had them go through their collection for a series of birds that were associated with the LA River. They scanned all these little note cards that people had written about these specimens from the late 1800s and early 1900s in Los Angeles County. And then Travis cross-referenced them with locations. If we know what bird species were nesting in the LA River at a certain area, we know the habitat that those bird species use and then we can deduce what kind of environment that it was. If we can ignore the freeway buzzing in the distance and the concrete that surrounds the LA River Channel, we can almost picture this place as it must have been in the 1900s, surrounded by rolling hills, clusters of coast live oaks and willow trees next to the river. But you don't have to go that far back to visualize the time when both the LA River and its surrounding areas were home to more species and plants, or at least more frogs. Think back just three decades ago. That's when Liz Vega first noticed them in the neighborhood next to the bow tie. Um, there was more tree cover, there was more frogs. So many frogs, in fact, that on the other side of the river, just about 100 yards or so from the bow tie, the neighborhood has been more commonly known as Frogtown. Locals have stories about finding frogs everywhere in the ground, on their car windshields, outside their doorsteps. It turns out they were young western toads and Pacific chorus frogs that were as small as two inches long. I mean, I would just be able to go out in the front yard and on the side of the grass, everywhere there were frogs. This was probably in 1988, and there were still frogs, not as many, but now there's none. No more frogs, it's sad. Then of course the walnut trees. I think um, this whole area used to be a walnut farm. And so there was a walnut tree in the backyard, a walnut tree in the front yard, uh, the neighbors had walnut trees, they were just all over, but now after 50 years, we had to knock them down because of the termites and the bees. Liz still lives near here, only a block away from the bow tie, in her grandparents' cottage that was built in the 1920s or 30s for railroad workers. She's one of the only women we've seen coming out here alone. This is an eerily quiet place, the kind that would make most women walking alone, myself included, feel vulnerable. I like it the way it is. And even the graffiti, it's not really too bad. That's, that's interesting. You like the raw quality of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I've, I've known it like this. I, I've known it forever to be like this. Liz comes out to the bow tie every day of the week, walking from its northern edge until the parcel ends and all the way back, a total of one and a half miles. She does it for exercise, but it's also her own ritual her way of finding nature in the big city. Next on South of Fletcher, stories from the Bowtie. Change comes to the little neighborhood pocket next door. That's out in two weeks. This series is produced by Clock Shop and Phonografia Collective. Our editor is Ibi Caputo. Music is from Luis Guerra. Funding comes from California Humanities, 
the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Wilhelm Family Foundation. For more information and to see Bear's photos, visit clockshop.org. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. Thanks for listening.